Uh, this morning, we will spend some time in a couple different passages of Scripture, but we'll spend the majority of our time in the 11th chapter of Luke. So if you have a Bible with you today, I'm going to talk about some verses from 1 Corinthians before we get there. But if you want to go to Luke chapter 11, we'll primarily zone in on the first two verses as Jesus interacts with his disciples around prayer. Uh, today is the third and final uh, review sermon of our spiritual practices so far. So we've been doing this for about a year and a half. We had time to address kind of an overview sermon series in 2021. Then in the fall of 21, we did a series on silence and solitude, which I summarized last week. And then today I'm going to be wrapping up the eight weeks that we did on prayer earlier this year in January and February. And the intention is, and I don't know exactly how it's going to work yet because this is all as new to me as it is to you guys, the intention would be that annually we would do this. We would kind of review how far we've been, catch people up who maybe weren't here physically when we worked through certain practices, and hopefully, if I do a good job, kind of integrate the practices a little bit more so you can start to see how you can really build a life out of being with God all the time, everywhere you are, no matter what, which is, I think, our objective. Um, two weeks ago, we, we got our paradigm for how you follow Jesus. The main three objectives for an apprentice of Jesus are to belong to him first, and then to behold him, that's what we spend most of our time doing on earth. And then as a result of that, we will become like him by looking at his example, by staying rooted in the grace and the mercy of Jesus that he offers to us freely. Uh, we can, over time, slowly change to become like him. Last week, the paradigm of silence and solitude came to us out of First Kings 19. We looked at the life of Elijah, really the very end of his life, right after he comes down off of Mount Oreb, or what we know as Mount Sinai at the end of chapter 19. He's whisked away into heaven. He hands off his ministry uh, like a runner in a marathon or a, a relay race. He hands the baton to a guy named Elisha. Elisha picks it up and keeps running, and we don't see Elijah again. And so it was an interesting way to kind of think through what happens when we pull away from all of the distractions and the anxieties and the things that uh, bombard us for our attention, and we are just with God alone, in the quiet, in a place where it's just us and him. What might he do, and what should we expect? Uh, today, we'll do kind of the same thing. We're going to work through at a very fast pace, uh, and I'll warn you that this is probably, I don't ever know until I'm done, but I think this is like top five, maybe densest sermons that I've ever preached, just really trying to get a lot of content in here, so we're going to move relatively quickly and cover a lot of ground. Uh, as I did last week, I'll give you the caveat that I can't really present and explain and defend every single point that I'm going to make today because this is eight weeks worth of preaching done in one review. So if any of this is new to you, explore it. Ask questions. Push back. Uh, this is not me trying to indoctrinate you. I just want to invite you into some practices that have been particularly freeing and helpful for me, but not just me. Thousands of years of Jesus followers have found uh, that these have been very life-giving ways for them to engage with the Spirit of God. So if it's not your thing, that's okay. But if you're looking for a way to uh, take a step forward in your faith and your walk with God, then I would recommend prayer, as we're going to talk about it today as a discipline, as a good step forward. So before we jump into prayer head first, I want to just take a little step back and, and answer a question that we should really ask ourselves any time that we find what I'll call pragmatic teaching in the church. So if you ever, ever read a book by a Christian author or you go to a Bible study, a small group, come to a church on a Sunday for a sermon or you attend a conference or you hear somebody talk about something on a podcast and they say to you or they write in their book, uh, you need to be doing X, Y, Z. Well, maybe, maybe that's exactly right. If they can root that in the scriptures and show you that that's God's perspective, then great. Take that with you know, the authority that it should carry in your life. But anytime we hear anybody tell us, you really ought to be doing more of this or that, you know, we start to kind of drift into the territory of the church in Galatia where we're adding to the gospel. And so we need to make sure that we're rooted in 
the scriptures. So anytime that we do something practical, we should ask ourselves, can we be certain that God really wants all Christians to do whatever it is that we're considering? Can we be sure about that? If the answer is not yes, that doesn't mean we should never do the thing, uh, in this case, prayer, but we should ask ourselves today, before we start to look at Jesus' example of prayer and maybe convince ourselves that we need to renovate our prayer life a little bit, we should just take one step back and ask ourselves, can we be certain that God wants all Christians to pray or to even be spiritually disciplined in general? So I think the answer to that is yes, I will uh, try to demonstrate to you from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church plant in Corinth that that was his perspective. It was very core to his Christian experience, and it's what he expected other Christians to do as well. So we're, we're asking, this is the question Paul is answering. Can we be certain that God wants all Christians to be spiritually disciplined? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. He asks a question. Do you not know that all the runners in a stadium compete, but only one receives the prize? Well, of course, he's assuming you do know that that's the way that a race works. So he goes on to say, so then run in order to win. Effort is what he's alluding to here. Try a little bit once in a while. In verse 25, he says, every competitor has to exercise self-control in everything. In order to do the thing that you want to do, you must master yourself. They do this in order to receive a perishable crown in a race, he's talking about. But he says, we, we Christians, we work toward an imperishable crown. Verse 26. Then Paul begins to talk about himself. He says, it's for this reason that I do not run uncertainly. Paul's saying, when it comes to my spiritual life, you're not going to see me just kind of running in circles and not knowing what to do and hoping that something works out. I have a plan. I have discipline. I've thought this thing through. I'm sure that it's worthwhile. I also, Paul says, I don't look like a boxer who's just striking at the air. I'm not wasting my time in that sense either. Instead, Paul says, I subdue my body. And I make my body to be my slave so that after preaching to other people, I myself will not be disqualified. So can we be certain that God wants all Christians to be spiritually disciplined? Well, it seems to me that Paul's answer would be yes. He uses words and phrases in this passage of scripture like run and self-control and subduing your body and making your body your slave. And he speaks of receiving something in return for effort. Uh, This means that there's the possibility of living a spiritual life that could look like someone swinging their fists at empty air. It means that there is a possibility of having a spiritual life that ends up with someone disqualifying themselves because they preach a gospel that they have no intention of submitting their life to. You've probably seen this with some celebrity pastors in the last couple of decades. They could have spent a little more time in 1 Corinthians 9 maybe. That would have helped them. What Paul has learned is that you must harness your physical life, in his case, his body, his time, his attention, his diet, his words, his schedule, in order to train his whole self to follow Jesus. So I'll ask you again, can we be certain that God wants all Christians to be spiritually disciplined? A second ago I said that Paul's answer seems to be yes. A more specific way to answer that question would be that God wants all Christians who have bodies to be spiritually disciplined. And just looking around the room and briefly surveying us, I would say that's about 100% of who's here today. Okay, so I think this applies to you. What the Apostle Paul understands is this. Wishful thinking, engaging with concepts, hoping that things get better in the future really have very little to do with the way that we live. It's not wrong to have your moral compass aligned with God. I would argue that that's kind of step one, but for many of us, we don't, there's no step two or three or on or on or on. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. Anytime we engage with spiritual practices, we run the risk of beginning to believe or me being unclear and maybe accidentally teaching you that there's more for you to do if you want God to love you. There's more for you to do if you want to wind up in heaven someday. There's more for you to do if you really want the blessings of God's love or for him to answer your prayer, and that's not what I'm saying. Remember what we talked about last week. A spiritual discipline is anything that can produce in us obedience to God out of love for God. Not obedience out of shame, not obedience out of fear, not obedience out of beating the people around us at being a Christian. Somehow we've figured out a way to turn that into a competitive sport. We don't want to do those things. We want to love God so much that we seek to obey him. And in order to obey him, because we are born disobedient, we're going to have to have some discipline about this thing. It's going to take some thought. It's going to take some planning. It's going to take a little bit of accountability in order for us to move forward. There's a reason that newborn babies don't compete in the Olympics. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Being born is God's business. What happens after that, whether or not we engage with it, it's rooted in the grace of God. That's belonging to Jesus. But there are still steps to take. And the Apostle Paul seems to think that a good way to think about it is the way that an athlete addresses their own body. We are in bodies. We are, you could say we are embodied people. And this is good news for us because so was Jesus. Jesus was incarnate. He wasn't just a spirit who came and hovered in a tent. That's what God did in the Old Testament. And his people had a lot of trouble following him because they couldn't really watch him. They only had men as examples and those men regularly failed. And so what were they supposed to do? Well, finally, Jesus came not only to live a life that they couldn't live in their place, but to show them what a life of obedience would actually look like. So what I would argue is if we want to be spiritually disciplined, and hopefully we do, because it seems like that's God's intention is for us to be spiritually disciplined and not just in our minds, but with our whole self, with the bodies that we inhabit, then we should look at Jesus, an embodied incarnate physical savior, and we should try to follow his example. So here we go. This is going to be some rapid fire scripture to try to show you how Jesus' disciples saw him praying. And this will come to you from a handful of the biographies that we have of Jesus in the New Testament. First in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, we see from Luke's perspective that the news about Jesus had spread and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. Yet Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness, or you could interpret that as a desolate, lonely place, in order to pray. So what do we learn first off the bat? That it is normal for Jesus, an embodied savior, our example, to retreat from other people and to spend enough time in prayer that people have to go find him. A chapter later in Luke 6, Luke recalls that Jesus at one point went out to a mountain to pray. And while he was there, he didn't sleep. He spent all night in communication with God, speaking to God, sharing his heart, sharing his mind, listening and enjoying the presence of God the Father. Three chapters later in Luke chapter 9, Luke recalls that once when Jesus was praying by himself and his disciples were kind of around them, excuse me, around him, he asked his disciples, who is it that the crowds say that I am? So interesting here that we see Jesus a little bit reflective in a way as he's in prayer. He's considering, what do other people think of me? What is my reputation? How is this whole kind of experiment, this God becoming man that's never happened before, how is it going? What do people think? A little bit later, uh, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James, and he went up a mountain with them to go and to pray. So sometimes he took other people along, and we can learn from his example that sometimes prayer is corporate in nature, that it's good to say, hey, I'm going to go pray. You want to go pray with me? Let's pray together and, and seek God's face together. And then finally, this brings us to a kind of our key text for today. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus again is praying. He prayed in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 9 again. And then here we are in chapter 11, he's praying again. At this point, something has changed for his disciples. 
The reason I know that is these are Jewish men who've been praying their whole life. They had to, or they would have gotten kicked out of their family. Maybe you grew up in a family like that, and that's the reason you pray. You're in good company. These men finally see something about the repeated pattern of Jesus' prayer life where they go, I don't really think I know anything about this. I don't have any idea what he's doing. I've never seen a person pray this way. I'm not sure what's the deal. So we see in Luke 11:1 that while he was praying, at the end of that prayer time, one of his disciples approached him and said, Lord, please teach us to pray. In the same way that John, he's talking about John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. He says, in the same way that John taught his disciples to pray, be our rabbi, be our teacher. When you pray, it's different. When you pray, things happen. When you pray, it seems like things change. And that's not been our experience as temple Jews. It's been our experience that we pray and just kind of hope that everybody sees us pray and therefore we don't lose any points in the community. Teach us, Jesus, to pray the way that you do. Now, that's a rapid-fire survey of just a handful of the times that we see Jesus pray in the New Testament. But by looking at that and just drawing out the most basic, obvious facts, he went away to pray, he prayed all night, he prayed on a mountain, he prayed with other people, I can at least say for myself, and maybe you can just, I don't know, you don't have to admit this if it's true for you, but I'll, I'll go first here. My prayer life doesn't look a lot like Jesus' prayer life. I tend to pray by trying to fill in the gaps in my life with prayer, the chinks in the armor of this successful facade that I try often to project into other people's view of me. I don't make a lot of time. I don't always prioritize. I rarely go away. I can't say that I've climbed a mountain with the sole purpose of praying all night long. It's just not really the way that I think. And I think I can say with confidence that that's the case for most of us. So like the disciples that Jesus had 2,000 years ago, we also have a lot to learn when it comes to prayer. And this is the most important place for us to start when it comes to prayer. Because if you think that you know everything that prayer is, and you feel like the example that we see from Jesus, maybe it's not practical enough, maybe it doesn't make sense, maybe you've discounted it because it happened so long ago, for whatever reason, if your conclusion is that it's irrelevant to you, then you won't learn a thing. You won't absorb anything at all. You won't actually behold the Jesus who you belong to, and therefore you don't stand a chance in the world of becoming anything like him. So I want to try to get us quickly to a place of humility where we can admit that regardless of how many prayers we've prayed or how long we've been praying people, we still have a lot to learn. Just like these disciples who had been praying 30 or 40 years of their lives, they saw Jesus and they said, you got to teach us how to do this. I've never seen anything like it. So quickly, if I can lay some groundwork for you, let's start by describing what prayer is. I define prayer as this, communication between the eternal human spirit and the eternal living God. So that can be spoken word, that can be, you've heard people pray silently, maybe you pray silently a lot, that simply means that you're using your inner voice, your inner monologue, you're aiming your spirit and your mind at God, you're willing that he do certain things, you're asking him to do certain things, you're bringing your emotions, your perspective, it's a lot of what you dig up in silence and solitude, you then communicate to God through prayer. Furthermore, prayer is these things based on the example that we get in Jesus' life. Prayer is honest. That means it tells the truth and it accepts the truth back in response. Prayer is direct. It gets right to the heart of the issue. Prayer is earnest. It doesn't play games with God. It doesn't play games with itself. It's spiritual, which means it issues forth from the eternal part of you. It's not reciting prayers like magic spells. It's engaging your spirit as you communicate with God. Prayer is also kingdom-minded. We learn from Jesus' example that if you don't have the kingdom of God in view when you pray, well, you're probably wasting your time. And prayer is, most importantly, humble. It starts and ends in a place that says, I have a lot to learn and I'm willing to listen, and I'm willing to watch, and I'm willing to grow. 
If we can say that com- with confidence that that's what prayer is, well, then what is prayer not? Here's a list of bad examples that we find in modern churches. Prayer is not lip service. When you're out there living for yourself and you have no intention of following God's plan and you have no intention of listening to him or submitting to him, well, you ought not waste a lot of your time praying. It would be like calling someone for advice that you hate and you intend to never listen to. It's a waste of your time and theirs. That's not really what prayer is. Prayer is also not an appeasement ritual to convince God to not hit you with a lightning bolt or whatever you're afraid of. It's not just a get out of jail free card where you punch your card and go, okay, God, I prayed. Now you're gonna obey me, right? You're gonna do whatever I want, whatever I think would be best. Prayer is not a rite of passage to prove to yourself or other people that you're spiritual enough. You guys have probably heard people pray in churches and it just seems like they're out to prove something. I've told you this story before, but I'll never forget. When I was growing up, the church I was a part of, uh, our deacons prayed before we passed the offering plate. You've probably been to churches that still practice that that way. And there was one deacon, I won't say his name because he's still alive, uh, but every time he would pray, he would quote some secular source. He would read from the Odyssey, or he would read from, uh, from like Hamlet or something like that. And as a third grader, I didn't know what any of that stuff was. I was like, I never heard that part of the Bible before. That sounds crazy to me. But people, you know, people, they would see his name in the bulletin and people would just exasperatedly sigh, like, here we go again. Because he felt pressure, God bless his soul, he felt pressure to try to be somebody that he wasn't, to try to prove himself, to try to be enough for all of us. And that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not for the social benefit of you and all the people around you. Prayer is your eternal spirit communicating with the eternal living God. I'll move quickly through these last three. Prayer is not a magic trick to fix your problems. Prayer is not grandstanding in front of other people for the sake of your social status. Uh, it's also not a great way to like preach at people. You've probably had people pray that way where they start praying and they just start to say all the stuff they really think you need to hear. Uh, they should be talking to God. They don't need to tell you that's God. God will do that. And then lastly, prayer is, and I wish I didn't have to mention this one, but unfortunately it happens. Prayer is not wicked condescension. Prayer is not gossip in Jesus' name. Prayer ought not be used as a way for you to air the dirty laundry of other people in the name of praying for them. Uh, Prayer is between your spirit and God's, and everybody can join in and do that communally, uh, but we don't have to share a ton of details with each other. We can. We ought to do that if we feel comfortable, but we don't have to be airing out other people's uh, skeletons in their closet in order to be able to pray. So in Luke 11, Jesus' disciples have seen some of these things. We can infer that they have seen Jesus pray in a way that's humble, direct, honest, earnest, spiritual, kingdom-minded. They've noticed that Jesus isn't praying the way that all of the Pharisees pray. There's a story elsewhere in the book of Luke where Jesus talks about a Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray, and his prayer is simply, God, thank you for not making me like the rest of these idiots. That's my, there's no Greek word for idiot. That's my interpretation. But that's basically what he says is he looks across the prayer room at another guy and he says, thank you for not making me like him, God. At least I'm better than him. And the dude prays it out loud in front of this person, if you can imagine that. So they've seen that example. This isn't exclusive to modern Western churches. This is the way backwards broken people have tried to manipulate and use prayer forever. So they've seen this in Jesus and they're saying to him, you got to teach us. You've got to teach us what it is that you know that we don't know. What do you see that we can't see? What are you sensing from God that we're not sensing so that we can pray in the same way that you do? And Jesus answers that question in verse 2. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, may your name be honored and may your kingdom come. And you've probably heard that verse a lot of times in a different translation, in lots of different contexts. Unfortunately, sometimes parts of the Bible become like our nose on the end of our face. We're so used to them, we don't see them anymore. 
right? You have a nose. If you take a second and notice it, you'll realize you see it all the time. It's constantly in your field of vision. You've never, you saw the Grand Canyon once and your nose. You saw the Statue of Liberty and your nose. The first time you saw your wife walk down the aisle, your nose was in the picture too. It's always there, okay? Your newborn baby, whatever. The great thing is that you experience your nose. But we ignore it. We're so used to it, we don't see it anymore. There's parts of the Bible that are like that too. What I want to invite you to do is see your nose again today a little bit, and I want to draw out of this extremely dense verse of Scripture four fundamentals that will not teach you how to pray, but hopefully will encourage you to become a praying person. I don't want to convince you that there's nine steps and you have to take all nine steps or else your prayers don't go to heaven and you don't get an answer. I want to convince you that God is closer than you think. He loves you more than you think he could. He cares about what you have to say, and he's actually listening. That's where we're going to go in summary. So the first fundamental that I'll draw out of that verse is that God is your father. If you are a follower of Jesus, God is your father. Now, maybe that feels a little anticlimactic to you, because if you're a Christian, you're also a Trinitarian. That means you believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you have some vague concept of a God, maybe an Old Testament God. He has a beard. He throws lightning. He probably looks a lot like Zeus. But he's out there, and maybe he's listening, and maybe he's not. Jesus died, so he's not that mad at you anymore. What Jesus wants you to understand is he is primarily a father in your life. We don't just call him father because he'll get mad if we don't. He plays that role. Now, for some of us, a father is a negative thing, and that's a complicated emotional experience that's valid and real. But God is the kind of father whose authority and whose love and whose attention and whose power benefit his children. He protects, he promotes, he endorses, he grows. He does challenge. Jesus says in John 15, if you're a a branch rooted in Jesus the vine abiding, one of the things God will do is prune you occasionally. You'll have a new little branch sticking out and you'll be feeling really good about where it's headed and God will go, nope, and he'll cut it right off. But he won't kill you. He's not going to literally cut your arm off. I'm not saying that. But spiritually, there may be something going on where you're digging it, and he's going, no, not right now. It's not going to work. But the bottom line for you and I is we're used to this idea. We think of God as a father already, and in Jesus' context, nobody did. The way the Pharisees prayed, the way that these disciples of Jesus had learned to pray for 30 or 40 years of attending either the temple or the synagogue was that God was primarily Lord, that he was a king, that he was a ruler, that he was angry that he had a standard. Now, some of those things are true all the time. Some of them are only true some of the time. But when Jesus said to his disciples, start your prayer by calling God Father, that right there could have been a 12-week sermon series in the little church in Capernaum where they all were. That's, that's a fundamental shift for them that you and I can sometimes be blind to. The reason that matters, the reason this is a fundamental of our practice of prayer is because if you see Yahweh as your father, the way that Jesus saw him as his father, then you stand a pretty good chance of understanding who God is, of seeing him the right way, as a good father who loves you and who cares about you, a God who cares about your future while also understanding where you've come from and having immense empathy and compassion for your circumstances, a father who gets you, a father who understands the scars and the baggage that you carry, a father who is willing to go with you where you go, to spend time with you, and to help you build a life with him. That alone, I think, stands a pretty good chance of transforming the way that we pray. What if you and God both could agree to be a lot less concerned about your circumstances and a lot more concerned about whether you and he are getting along? And what does he want? And what does he think? And what is your perspective? And and have you listened and have you heard from him lately? Jesus says that that's the first step. It's the first of these four fundamentals. The second, coming from verse 2, 
is that your father is within your reach. Now, this one's a little tricky to explain. This is one of those points I'm going to make that if I had 40 more minutes, I could probably explain and defend. Uh, Email me if you don't get it, truly. I would love to help you know why I can say this with confidence, but you may just have to trust me a little bit here today. If you look at verse 2 of Luke 11 and you have a physical Bible, there's a really good chance that there is a footnote in verse 2 where the Bible talks about Father, where it says to you that Jesus tells his disciples to start their prayers by calling God the Father. What that footnote would tell you is that in most ancient manuscripts, which is just the first 100 or so copies of Luke's biography of Jesus, that they included the phrase after Father, hemen ha'en tois uranus in Greek, which simply means our Father who is in heaven or our Father of the heavens. Now, if you grew up playing football in East Texas like I did, which is probably about three of us, Every single game that you ever played, everybody said that in English, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy... And then we would go hit each other as hard as we possibly could and curse like sailors. And if we lost, we would say, well, God's using this to sanctify us, when really maybe we just weren't any good at football. I don't know. Um, but that, that's a familiar concept. In Luke's version of this account, it doesn't show up in English. But here's the point that I want to make to you. Jesus says, call God your Father, but then remind yourself, understand and remember where your Father is located. If you have a Father who's never home, you don't really have a Father. You have a biological DNA submitter, right, who helped you come to be, and that's fine, and maybe you have his eyes and his nose and his bad attitude, but if he's not in the home helping you with your homework and helping you when you scrape your knee and loving on you when things are bad and challenging you with discipline and a way to live that is right and best, then in function, he does you very little good. In the same way, God can be your father, but if you think he's a million miles away, either out there or up there or something like that that Christians say all the time, what good does that do you? What good does it do you to see the Bible in function as like a group of letters that your distant father who abandoned you wrote to try to help you do your best to meet his standards? It's not going to help you very much. It's not very appealing when I say it that way. We treat the Bible like that quite a bit, but maybe it stings a little bit to hear me say it in that kind of blunt, crass way. My point is this. Jesus is trying to locate the Father. He's not trying to locate the Father as far from you. He's not talking about how far away God is. He's talking about how near to us God is. When Jesus first shows up on the scene in Mark chapter 1, he explains that the kingdom of God has come. That's what he's talking about when he talks about heaven, the kingdom of God, eternity, the place where everything goes the way that God intends for it to without question. It's the place you and I are headed if Jesus is our Savior. Jesus communicates a miracle when he shows up on the scene in Mark 1. He says the kingdom is close. It's within your reach. It's nearer than it's ever been to you. And so if the kingdom is close, if that kingdom is what Jesus means when he talks about the heavens or the heavenly places, then God, the one who makes heaven what it is, is also very close. He's not a million light years away. He doesn't exist on some other planet way out in the cosmos. He's right next to you. Now, you can't sense him all the time, and that's the limits of your human body, but he's there. And if you open himself, excuse me, if you open yourself to his influence and his presence, you'll begin to learn to sense him. You'll begin to learn to know when he's speaking to you, when he's leading you, when he's prodding you. Not at first. You'll have to practice prayer for a while before you start to kind of get that flavor and figure out when it is him and when it's not. But you can get there, and Jesus intends for you to do so. So think about the way that you think about God. Do you picture him as right next to you or a million miles away? Do you think of him as leaning in and listening close to you, his beloved child? Or do you feel that your prayer interactions are similar in some ways to returning a package to Amazon, right? I put something in a box, it gets a label, I give it to somebody I don't know that well, and hopefully everything works out. I check my app, right, a few days later to see if it got where it needed to go. Some of us, that's how we experience prayer. Jesus' vision for your prayer life is significantly different from that. 
The third fundamental of prayer for us is that cherishing our Father, our Father who is within our reach, God himself, that that's the point. Now, I could try to explain to you what hallowed be your name means in the context in which Jesus said it, an honor-bound culture, but I'll let the late, great Tim Keller explain it for me because he says it better than I possibly could. This is from his book on prayer. He says, to hallow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy toward God. And even more than that, more than joy, a wondrous sense of God's beauty. Now, consider how different this is from the normal way that we use prayer to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes, our deepest happiness resides in things as in how successful we are in our social relationships. We therefore pray mainly when our career or our finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. When life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seem safe, it does not occur to us to pray. Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things that make us happy. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. Jesus would like for God to become your happiness. Jesus believes that that's a realistic objective that you would have for your life, that by disciplining yourself in prayer, by teaching yourself these truths that God is your father, and every time your heart and soul resist that reality and you just can't believe it and you're not sure, you just bombard that part of yourself with scripture that tells the truth. You just keep telling yourself the truth. Eventually, your mind will change. It's the way God made you. You are way more programmable and malleable than you probably think you are. You just have to be plugged into the right things for that change to occur. Once you've embraced that concept and you've settled with the idea that God is actually very, very close and intimately involved in your day, then you'll begin to love him. You'll want to spend that time with him. That want in you will change. You may have tried to do this out of order and build the practice in and force yourself to do it all the while you still hated it. Jesus seems to think grappling with the reality of God as your father and him being nearby precludes you saying to him, hallowed be your name. In other words, don't try to hallow God's name if you don't know God. Get to know him first and then cherish him. Then you'll begin naturally over time. It's that same paradigm. You belong and then you behold and then what happens? You become like him. You begin to cherish, to love, to root your happiness in the reality of his presence. The fourth fundamental and maybe the hardest pill for some of us to swallow is that your father has willingly opened himself to your influence. Now I'm gonna caveat this probably no less than three times today because I really wanna make sure you understand what I'm saying. Right out of the gate, what I am not saying is that God is beholden or required to obey you, not at all. Unfortunately, when we use the word help, just the way you and I use it, that typically means that one person is in charge and one person is doing the grunt work. That's what we mean by help. It's very hierarchical, automatically. If I ask my daughter to help me with the dishes, I already have a plan. I'm going to tell her where the soap is. I know what order we're going to go in. I just want her to multiply my effort, to multiply my ability. That is not what the Bible means when it talks about help. Even to go all the way back to the first man and the first woman when God joined them together, the presence of that woman as a helper is not intimately connected to, to subordination. She doesn't have to bow down on her knees to do God's will. She, she can be a helper alongside of and a multiplier of the presence, but also a partner and a collaborator. So what God is inviting us to do, what Jesus is saying we ought to do when we pray, is say specifically to God what we as followers of Jesus, this is very important, what we as spirit-filled, regenerated followers of Jesus think would be best. 
Now, that does not mean that God will ever say, okay, a couple hundred thousand of you guys prayed for this, and I don't really think it's the best way, but there's only three of me, and technically one, and there's however many of you prayed, and so we're going to do it your way. Not at all. No. What it means is that God, as a loving father, is choosing to bend down and open his ears to you, and listen, and consider what you think and consider how you feel, and allow the Spirit of God in you to speak truth back to him. If that feels redundant, you're not gonna like eternity, because <laughs> that's all we're gonna do is say things to God he already knows, but that he's worthy of glory and honor and praise and worship, and we won't get tired of saying it, and he won't get tired of hearing it. In a way, my friends, this, this mechanical, kind of ice-cold, metallic way that we've learned prayer and how we handle prayer, it's so different from the way that Jesus prayed. I mean, fundamentally, like in essence, it's built out of different stuff than Jesus' prayer life was. Maybe you've never thought about this before. Prayer is one of the only things that will barely change at all in eternity for you. The way you pray today, the way you experience prayer, the way you engage with God, the way you can know his presence, sure, in eternity, you'll have eternal eyes that can see him, but I'm not sure that will make that big of a difference in your communication with him. I would like to think that prayer is one of the eternal elements of what it will mean to know God and live with him that God has lovingly ripped up and transplanted into our temporary reality on earth. We can communicate with God. He is listening. Jesus says you don't have certain things because you haven't asked. Doors are closed all over your life because you're not knocking. You never find anything of value because you're not looking for anything of value. Engage. Remember what Paul says. Run as if there is a race with a prize. The imperishable prize that we receive at the end of life is Jesus himself. So if he's willing to get down on the track and run alongside us, why in the world would we do anything but say, yes, please, all the time forever? This is what's available to you and I. And what we accept instead is like, wishes in the wishing well at the mall. We toss a penny in and we go, man, I hope today gets better. We have no agency. We have no sense of God's character. We don't know what he might do or what he should do or what he's promised to do. And Jesus is telling us he's your father. He's close by. He loves you and you can love him. And in that relationship, he will listen. He will listen. Now, maybe that seems too good to be true to you. So, I'll just give you in summary what took me a whole sermon to preach to you before, which is that if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, if you were to just read the first three chapters of Genesis today, what you would find is that God's original plan for humanity was to work with him, to collaborate. I'm very comfortable using that word. Again, we misunderstand what help means. We're not helping God in a way where we're adding to or leading him or he's, he has to do what we say because six days a week he's the boss, but once a week we get to do whatever we want and make a mess. Not at all. God is inviting us into what he's already doing, and here's what we forget, is he built us to do this stuff. It's not like God just showed up on earth and there were people and he was like, boom, I'm enslaving you guys and you're gonna worship me. He designed you at the molecular level to do nothing better than know him and praise him. So you are by default, if you do anything else but that with your time and energy, you are gonna be frustrated. You're not gonna find what you're looking for. You won't be fulfilled. It is merciful and kind of God to call you to do the thing he built you to do. It's your purpose. So if you look at Genesis, you'll see that from the, the get-go, 
God gave work before there was ever sin. I know some of us would prefer not to believe that's the case, but even if there hadn't been sin, you'd still have to clock in in the morning. It looks like that's the way God intended it. We have work, we have a purpose, we're collaborating. What sin does is it breaks that purpose. It allows our disordered longings to change what it would have meant to collaborate with God. It builds a wall between us and God. That distance from God isn't just emotionally painful, it's significant because it prevents us from working with him. We can't do stuff with him the way he says. This is why if you fast forward in your Bible to John 15, when Jesus says, abide in me because apart from me you can do nothing, he's telling a group of people what's been true for 4,000 years. You've done nothing. You were supposed to do everything together with me. It was the whole plan. And you went your own way, and so now there's a wall, and here I am. I'm Jesus. I'm back. What does Ephesians tell us? He tore the wall to the ground. The dividing wall is gone, but you have a choice. You can collaborate with God again, or you can try to pray your way out of hell and never think about God again, and maybe, just maybe, and I don't mean this as a curse on your life, you may find yourself in the context of Matthew 7 when you look Jesus in the eye someday and you say, I did all this stuff for you, and he says, who are you? What is your name? I don't think we've met. And you go, "Uh, what about the demons I cast out? What about the meals I gave away? What about the great preaching I did and the the arenas I filled and the music I made and the parenting and my big savings account? God, I was so responsible. And he's gonna go, could you just write your name down for me and maybe we can do a name? I don't know, I don't know. Who are you? The scariest part of that is he says, you gotta leave. This place that I built is for people who know me. It's for people that walk with me. It's for people who abide in me. It's for branches that are rooted in the vine. It's just an extension of this life with me that you already lived on earth. It's, you're rooted in my mercy and your grace. It's not about performing. In fact, it's the opposite. You've been performing your way away from me this whole time. What Jesus wants is for us to re-embrace the original objective for humanity to collaborate with God. So here's what that means for you. I'm gonna preach a whole another sermon. I gotta stop, I'm sorry. What that means is, and I, I, this is going to seem like a riddle, but maybe it'll make sense to you. I hope it will help you. There are things that are going to happen that if you pray, won't happen. So you can think of those as negative things. There are negative things, painful things, hurtful things, abusive things, terrible crimes against people, against God, that if you will pray and say to God, protect these people, do these things, move in this way, bring your kingdom to the earth, those things won't happen. God will allow you to invite him into places where he will choose to work because you asked him to. The other side of the coin means that there are things that are not going to happen, that if you pray, will happen. There are people who will suffer terrible experiences but could be saved from that if you would petition God. Now, here's where we have to be so careful again, caveat two, okay? We can't tell ourselves that the fate of the world rests on our shoulders. That's not what God said. He didn't say that. Jesus didn't say, or else. There is no or else. He simply said, if you want to pray the way that I pray, which is the whole objective, it's not to get what you want. If you want to pray the way that I pray, what you have to do is ask God to do the things that would be right and good in the world. That's what he means at the end of verse 2. When he says, say to God, may your kingdom come and your will be done, sometimes that means that when we pray, we simply say, may your kingdom come and may your will be done. Because we don't know what's going on. Life is going pretty good, and we can't think of any tragedy or crisis. I know you have an iPhone, so that's probably not the case in your life. But maybe a long time ago, people could live in the countryside and actually not have any problems. I don't know. Most of the time, though, what it looks like is it looks like taking that concept, your kingdom come, your will be done, and applying it to your circumstances. And saying, God, I think... And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know anything. I couldn't have saved myself, right? That's why we start with Jesus' mercy. But we go to God and we say, I think, I think maybe your kingdom coming would look like this. 
I think your will being done because I know you in the scriptures. Because I have your spirit living in my life with me. I think your will being done would look like this. And so we pray for people that are sick to be healed. We pray for people that have been attacked and wounded and carry deep baggage and trauma to be set free from that. We pray for the lost to be saved. If we don't believe that God wants to hear from us and we don't believe that God has any intention of doing anything we ask him to do, we should quit praying now and never pray again. That would be more honest. It would be more honest to not pray if we don't think God's gonna listen. So what I think is true is when I say it to you this way, it feels too good to be true, it feels a little too scary to be true, but the spirit of God inside of you still has you praying on a somewhat regular basis and so you actually know that it is true. It's just hard to say it out loud. It's scary. It's scary. It's intimate. It's personal for God to actually choose to listen to you and you know all the awful things that you did just yesterday and God still wants to hear from you because the mercy of Jesus has been applied to your life. Your father has willingly opened himself to your presence. So I'm out of time. Give me four more minutes and I'm gonna tell you two ways you can do this and then we'll pray and we'll be done today. What do you do? How do you start, okay? We know, go all the way back to 1 Corinthians. We know, we feel certain. God wants people to be spiritually disciplined. We know prayer is important. We know the way Jesus prayed is different from the way that we prayed to the point that both his disciples and us here today are asking Jesus, teach me. Jesus taught us some of the things he teaches us. A little hard to wrap our heads around, but we're trying. So what do we do? We know how to do it. We know why we should do it. We have an example. If you want to become disciplined in prayer, what do you actually do? That's the right question to ask. I'm going to offer you two things. I'm going to offer you sort of a rhythmic, long-form prayer practice, and then I'm going to throw you a prayer. It's liturgical. It's pre-written, but it can fill those gaps and cavities when you're overwhelmed and you don't know what to say to God. So first, the long-form prayer practice is what we call fixed-hour prayer. This is your decision to plan ahead to invite God to interrupt you, to get in your way, to disrupt what it was that you had going on. It's an alarm on your phone. It's somebody else texting or calling you and saying, hey, I'm praying right now. Are you praying? What should we pray for today? But it's you looking ahead and saying, God, I'm never going to do this organically. Let's just be honest with each other about that. I'm not going to just naturally wiggle my way into the true vine and abide because I have great parents and I'm a pretty nice guy. No, I'm going to run the opposite direction and keep building that wall of division. That's all I do on my own. So I'm going to have to make a plan and take advantage of the time. Think of what Paul said, right? Schedule, diet. I'm going to discipline myself. And I'm going to choose at whatever time, whatever happens, whoever I'm with, to just stop and return my attention to God. Maybe that's 30 seconds, maybe it's three minutes, maybe it's 15 minutes, maybe it's an hour once a day. I don't know. That's up to you. We all train differently in the gym. We can practice prayer differently. But the, the thing that matters is the plan to do it, to intend to do it. You've got the vision. You've got the means. Now, you've got to ask yourself, do I really have the intent? I know how. I know why it should matter. Do I really intend to do this or not? Or do I want to be the same person who doesn't pray that much in 10 years? Because that's what will happen organically. You'll just coast. You'll ride the roller coaster of life and you'll pray a lot when your kid gets hit by a school bus and you'll pray a lot when your marriage is on the rocks and you'll pray a lot when you owe the government money because you did the math on your taxes wrong. But you won't pray often and you won't pray about your life. You'll pray about your crises. And that's fine. You can settle for that. Lots of Christians have and they're still in eternity with God and they love him and he loves them. But if you want to be disciplined and you want to know God personally in a way that you don't right now and you want to share your life with him, fixed hour prayer, 10 a.m., 3 p.m., 6 p.m., midnight, whatever, Look it up. If you've never heard of this before, again, I told you, I can't, I can't present, explain, and defend everything in this one sermon, but just Google it. Find a model, find a partner, and go for it this week, and just try it and see what happens. Second tool, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A prayer to pray when words won't come. 
Because that's a barrier, let's be honest. There are times when we feel like, man, this is a lot's going on and I should probably talk to God about this and I don't even know where to begin. This is, in my assessment, a summary of the gospel. Who is Jesus? He's Lord. Is he real? Yes, because I'm addressing him directly. Is he just a good guy or a great leader? No, he's the son of God. He's able to do all the things I'll ask and even more. So who am I? Well, I'm a sinner. I have no hope outside of him, and what do I need? Do I need him to get on board with my plan and make my day better and help me be successful? No, I need mercy. That's all I need all the time. I just need mercy. I'm filthy. I'm gross. I got nothing really going on that's any good without God. I need mercy. This is a prayer that I pray sometimes when I run. I hate running, so I'll just pray it rhythmically. Uh, This is a prayer that I pray in hard meetings when people are angry with me. I pray it for me, and I pray it for them. This is a prayer that I pray often uh, first thing in the morning, right before bed. I don't have this long, elaborate prayer list. If you do, that's good. Keep doing that. But for me, it's a cry of mercy. God, I'm back awake. I don't know what was going on when I was asleep, but I'm here to mess things up. So please have some mercy on me. And I'm going to bed tonight, and I'm not going to help anybody. So have mercy on me. Keep me alive. Put breath in my lungs. I can't do it. I don't know if you think about yourself that way. I think we give ourselves probably too much credit in every area. But ask God to do this, to have mercy, and he will. You'll grow so much closer. It's a prayer that I pray on an airplane when it hits turbulence. It's a prayer I pray when I know I've sinned against somebody. The list goes on and on and on. I keep this in my back pocket all the time. And you pray your own prayer. If you want to write out a short prayer, that's great. Root it in scripture. That's where this one comes from. I didn't write this originally. Somebody else told me about it, and I thought it was good, so I just adopted it. It's kind of the way discipline goes, right? You go to the gym, and you go, what's that lift? And the guy goes, oh, this is great if your low back hurts. And you go, cool, I'm going to do that lift now. You don't make up all your own lifts in the gym. That'd be ridiculous, right? So let somebody else offer you a discipline that's worked for them. Take it, have some humility, and enjoy how it grows your relationship with God. I can guarantee you that it will. So this is prayer as a spiritual practice from the way of Jesus I want us to briefly practice prayer now together. Let's do that, and then we're gonna come to God's table for communion. I'll talk you through that in a second. Father, we love you. And on days like today, I feel like I am split right down the middle. There is half of me that is so excited, I feel like I'm gonna jump out of my skin at the opportunities that exist for people like me, regular old just dorks who don't know what they're doing and can't get it right and and work so hard at things that don't matter and fight for stuff that isn't important and I just see in you this hope of glory, this seed of a thing that could grow to be meaningful, that could matter forever. And then the other half of me, God, is scared to death of that. I know I need to be in the light. I want to be in the light. I want to live in your presence. I'm scared to death of what it would mean to turn the lights on in every room of my life. It's mortifying. What if everybody knew everything about me? What if I acknowledged that you knew everything about me? I like to act like you don't know certain things. It makes me feel a lot better. But what if I came all the way into the light and shot you straight the way that you shoot me straight, God? It's hard to do. It's scary. So for all of us today, anywhere on that spectrum, would you meet us here? Would you give us the courage and the confidence to know that you're listening? To not mysticize this thing, to not turn it back into anything it's not supposed to be, like a grandstanding or appeasement or some kind of test to pass or a magic trick but just a chance to be near our Father who loves us. Teach us about that love, God. Teach us the value and the beauty of that intimacy, and may we become the kind of people who are so crazy about you that we take big risks, risks like changing our schedule, changing our family priorities, thinking through our career future, thinking through what success means for us. Let us learn to be people who measure our days only by whether or not we have known you and you have known us. We love you and we treasure you, God. You are so good to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.